There is a faith factor in walking with God that we sometimes forget. There is a verse in the Bible, you don't need to turn there, you, you probably already know it, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, and it says, we live by faith, not by sight. Now, I'm going to have you to ask you to participate some with me tonight, so I want to just start with that. In your estimation, what does that little verse mean? We, we live by faith, not by sight. What does that say to you? What does that mean to you? We don't see Jesus, but we have faith in him. That's good. That we believe, absolutely. We trust. You see, we don't focus just on the present. We also focus on the future, don't we? We we walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, We don't focus just on the seen. We focus on the unseen as believers. We live by faith, not by sight. We really, if you think about it, we embrace a lifestyle that contradicts what most people would do. We embrace a lifestyle that most people who are not Christians have a hard time understanding. Uh, But the truth is, you and I cannot walk with God without the faith factor. So we come tonight to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you haven't already, open your Bibles to that text. Hebrews chapter 11 is the classic faith chapter of the Bible. It's the record of the men and the women of the Old Testament who were heroes of the faith. Before we jump into that chapter, though, we need to see how that chapter fits in the whole book. You see, the writer of Hebrews did not sit down one time and think, I'm going to write the, the, the Hall of Faith chapter. I'm going to write this chapter about the heroes of the faith. He wasn't just trying to write this beautiful, poetic kind of a document. No, Hebrews chapter 11 fits into the story of the entire book of Hebrews. And so we need to understand a little bit of, of the book of Hebrews before we look at this chapter in Hebrews. So I'm going to ask you to do some digging for yourself tonight. On, on the front of your outline, I hope that you have one. If not, there's still some up here, maybe in the back. On the front of your outline, there are five questions I want you to find the answer to. You say, now, where are we going to find the answer to these things, Pastor? Uh, a lot of you have study Bibles. If you look in the front of the book, like if it's in the front of Hebrews, you'll find the answers. Or a lot of you have a phone. you got a smartphone. Use it. See how smart it is. All right? So, now, here's the thing. You can work together on this. In fact, I would encourage you to work together. It'll go quicker, and we won't take as much time. So, five questions. The first one is this. Who wrote the book? Number two, to whom was it written? Number three, why was it written? Number four, when was it written? And number five, what's the theme of the book? All right, so on one, two, three, get started. Walk around and find somebody to help you if you need it. One, two, three, let's go.
All right. You may not have gotten all of them yet, but at least you made a good effort to get most of them, and we'll hopefully fill in the blanks for you. So, as we're trying to study this chapter, it's good to take a broader view and say, okay, well, let's first understand the book. So, five key questions that you should answer when you're studying any book of the Bible are these listed on your, on your notes. First question is, who wrote the book? So, what's your answer to that one? Who wrote the book? I heard a lot of different things at one time. Well, who wrote the book? You say Paul. Who, who wrote the book? You think Paul. Who wrote the book? Maybe Barnabas? Maybe Paul. Anybody else? Apollos? The Holy Spirit? Absolutely. There's always the spiritual one, right? <laughs> who wrote the book? The answer is, quite honestly, we don't know for sure. Uh, for the first 1,200 years, the, the early church believed that Paul wrote it. And, and, uh, and, and then that kind of changed. <clears throat> for, for the longest time, I, I've, I've kind of leaned towards Paul as the author, but there's no evidence. It, it's different from the other letters that he wrote. He always put his name in the letter. And, and so it's different from, from the letters, but it sure sounds like Paul when you read it uh, to some degree. So, but, but basically, it's, it's anonymous. It's, it's the only anonymous letter we have in the New Testament. Uh, the, the author is, is really anonymous. Uh, so, number two, to whom was it written? And this is a key question. To whom was this letter called, he, whoever wrote it, to whom was it written? Just Christians, what? Somebody raise your hand and help, help so I can hear what you have to say. Describe who it was written to. All right, Donna? We're, we're not exactly sure where they lived. Some say that they did live in Jerusalem. Some say, no, they lived outside of, outside of Palestine. Um, uh, some would even say they lived like in Italy uh, because of the way the, le- the, the letter ends, all right? But they were Jewish Christians, all right? What else did you know about them? Huh? Persecuted. Yeah. Anything else you found out about the audience? Absolutely. Let me describe it to you this way. Jewish converts who were familiar with the Old Testament and were tempted to revert back to Judaism. Make sure you put that on your notes. They were tempted to revert back to Judaism. They were tempted, and if not to, re- to revert back to Judaism, to at least Judaize the gospel. Now, what does that mean, Pastor, to Judaize the gospel? Well, it means to kind of blend the gospel with Judaism. Uh, they, wanted to, they wanted to blend the two, all right? So they were tempted to either revert back and just become Jews or to blend the gospel with the Judaism, uh, which is called Judaize the gospel. And, and, and they were also facing persecution. So don't forget this, and you'll hear me say it a couple of times tonight. Remember these three things about the audience. Jewish Christians, they were Christians, but they were Jewish Tempted to revert back to the gospel, uh, revert back to Judaism, or Judaize the gospel. And they were experiencing severe and ongoing persecution for their faith. All right, number three, why was it written? Why was the letter written? To talk about 
to talk about the superiority of Christ and Christianity over Judaism. Why would that be important? They were tempted to revert back, right? They were tempted to go back to Judaism. So this letter was written to say, no, you need to understand, Christ is far superior to, to anything you found in Judaism. And then they would say, whoa, 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 what about Moses? And so the right of Hebrew says he's, big, he's better, superior than Moses. All right? And, and all kinds of things throughout that book like that. Uh, I, I found this summary in the front of this life application Bible. I just want to read it to you because it, it really is, is very, very good. It says, when Christ came, he fulfilled the law and the prophets, conquered sin and Satan, shattered all the barriers to God, and freely provided eternal life through a new and superior covenant established by his own blood. You see, they would say, what about the old covenant? The Old Testament covenant? And, and the writer of Hebrews says, yes, but there's a better one. There's a superior covenant than the old covenant. So listen to what he says. This new message, listen, this is so good. This new message was difficult for pious Jews to accept. Although they had sought the Messiah for centuries, they were also entrenched in thinking and worshiping in traditional forms. To some, following Jesus seemed like a repudiation of their heritage and the scriptures. They'd grown up with the temple. They'd grown up with sacrifices. They'd grown up with, with everything that goes with Judaism. And for some, it was like, well, if we follow Christ, that's a repudiation of everything our mom and dad taught us. It's, it's a repudiation of everything we've grown up with. And, and so, <clears throat> listen to what he says. Many Jews listened to the gospel, but some rejected it and altogether sought to eliminate this heresy. Others who did accept Jesus as their Messiah sometimes found themselves tempted to slip back into the old and familiar. We do that too, don't we? Tempted to slip back into the old and the familiar. Hebrews is a masterful document written to demonstrate the, exclusive, the exclusiveness and superiority of the new covenant. The overarching message of Hebrews is that Christianity is superior to Judaism because Christ is supreme and completely sufficient for salvation. Now listen to this last two sentences. Because of doubts and fierce persecution, the original recipients of this letter may have been wavering in their faith considering a return to Judaism. In other words, the persecution they were going through for their faith made them wonder, is this real and is it worth it? The writer, therefore, clearly demonstrates that abandoning Jesus Christ would mean forsaking God's salvation. A very important point to understand the whole book and to understand chapter 11. <clears throat> number four, question number four. When was it written? When was this letter written? Actually, it would be before yeah, we don't know exactly, but, but it would be before A.D. 70, probably in the late 60s. Some would say A.D. 68, A.D. 69, somewhere in there. Can you tell me what happened in A.D. 70? Yeah, in A.D. 70, <clears throat> Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and none of that is mentioned in this letter. In fact, what, as this writer writes the letter, he talks about the temple. He talks about the Jewish practices. So apparently the temple was still standing when this letter was written. And the Jewish practices of sacrifice were still being carried out. And so it, this letter was written sometime before the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. As I thought about that, I, I thought, you know, it's pretty cool that 
God wrote a letter to these Christians to say, you know how you're tempted to go back, lean back, refer back to the old system and to the temple and all of those kind of things? God could see the present just like he could see the future. And God knew that what they were about to put their faith in was about to be destroyed. The temple wasn't going to be there forever. Jerusalem was going to be in, in, in rubble. But Jesus Christ is eternal. And so they, they were placing their faith in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews wanted to make sure they hung on to that. All right, so the, the number five. We've already kind of alluded to this, but what's the theme or the purpose of this book? The superiority of Christ. And I want you to notice, again, we're trying to take the broad picture of this book. I want you to notice how this book opens. Hebrews chapter 1, go there with me, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times, And in various ways. That's kind of a description of what what happened in the Old Testament. God spoke to people through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Not by a prophet, but by his son. Whom he appointed, God appointed, heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. So he became as much superior, there's that word, to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So the theme of the book is the superiority of Jesus Christ. Now, you see this word, we we saw it there, superior. Uh, if you look up that word superior, or if you look up a similar word, supreme, in the dictionary, you'll find this definition. Highest in rank and authority. Or, number two, greatest in power. Or, number three, last or final or ultimate. Those are the words in the dictionary to describe what the word supreme means. And all of those words are descriptions of Jesus Christ. Would you agree? Jesus Christ is highest in rank and authority. He, you know, we, we don't, there's not just, just a court, but in America we have not just a court, but we have a supreme court, which is the highest of the courts, right? Jesus Christ is not just a Savior. He is the only Savior, and He is supreme over everything and everyone. He's highest in power, highest in utmost, uh, greatest in importance and achievement. He is the last, the final, the ultimate word from God. And the last and the ultimate and the final sacrifice for mankind. Now, so throughout this book we call Hebrews, the writer, whoever it was, Paul or Apollos or somebody else, whoever the writer was, throughout this book of Hebrews, he is presenting uh, <clears throat> to us that Jesus Christ is better than everything else they've been trusting in. And so the word better is used 13 times in the book. You might want to write that down. There's not a blank, but you might want to just write that down. The word better is used 13 times in the book as the writer of Hebrews shows the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his salvation over the Hebrew system of religion. So the, reader, the writer of Hebrews answers a very key question for us, and that is, why should we choose to be followers of Jesus and live our lives as Christians, especially 
when it may cost us. That's what he's answering there. And the whole book, in one way or another, answers that question or those questions. So, let me give you an outline for the book before we dig into it. Uh, Again, you don't have a place to write this down, but it's just a very extremely simple outline, but it will really help you understand the the overall message of the book. In the first ten chapters, basically I'm going to divide Hebrews into two sections. The first ten chapters talks about the superiority of Jesus Christ. The superiority of Christ is chapters one through ten. He's superior over everything in the Hebrew faith. All right? Then, chapters, chapter 10, verse 19, through chapter 13, which is the end of the book, chapter 10, verse 19, through chapter 13, talks about the superiority of faith in Christ. So the first 10 chapters talks about the superiority of Christ, and then the last three chapters basically talks about the superiority of faith in Christ. Now, we're starting out with this broad picture, and we're trying to narrow the focus. So before we get to chapter 11, let's go to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 will kind of give you the context of what these Jewish Christians were dealing with, what they were facing, what the writer of Hebrews was trying to accomplish as he wrote to them. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Clearly, he's writing to Christians here. He calls them brothers. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of what? Faith. In full assurance of faith. Keep reading. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold, what's that next word? Let us hold what? Unswervingly to the hope or to the faith that we profess. Unswervingly has the idea that regardless of what's happening, regardless of the circumstances around you, regardless of what you're going to be facing, regardless of what you're going to go through, regardless of what it's going to cost you, he's saying to these Hebrew Christians, you need to hold unswervingly to the hope or to the faith we profess. And here's the reason. For he who promised is faithful. You see, faith is only as good as the person you have faith in. And he who promised is faithful. So, the readers of this epistle, this letter, were being tempted to go back to Judaism, and they were, in in essence, tempted to put their faith back in Moses. That, That was the temptation, to go back and kind of put their faith in Moses. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, hold unswervingly to the faith you profess. Now let me describe to you what they were going through. Look at verse 32 as we get closer to chapter 11. Look at verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, after you'd come to faith in Christ is what that means? When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? 
Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution because of their faith in Christ. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. That is, even when they came and took your stuff away, even when they came and took your possessions because you're a follower of Christ, you held unswervingly to what you believed because you understood there was something better than what you were giving up. Verse 35. Key verse. So, do not throw away your confidence. That is, your confidence, your faith in Christ. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by what? By faith. And then notice the second half of verse 38. And if He shrinks back, I will not be pleased with Him. And then he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. We are not of those who shrink back. And that was the temptation they had, wasn't it? We're not of those who shrink back. He said, we are those who believe and are saved. You know, I, I found, and I'm sure that you would agree with this, I found that Christians generally don't set out to doubt God. We don't start that way. We don't intend to doubt God. But sometimes life's pain simply catches us off guard, doesn't it? Sometimes things happen and we begin to doubt what we've always believed. Circumstances are not what we anticipated they would be. Things happen that we never believed would happen. And all of a sudden, we're blindsided by something, and we begin to doubt what we've believed. Tonight, we're going to <clears throat> talk about how you and I need to leave the wilderness of doubt and how we can have an attitude of faith. So, we're finally coming to Hebrews chapter 11, now that you've got the context. And we're, tonight, we're going to look at the first three verses uh, as we work our way through this chapter. He begins with a biblical description of faith. Here's how he describes it, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. <clears throat> now, this is not really a definition of faith, but it is a description of what faith does and how faith works. You do have on your notes there, you've got on the second, on the back side, you've you got a some blanks there that you might want to fill in. What faith does. You know what faith does for us? First of all, faith gives us a foundation to stand on. It gives us a foundation to stand on. In the first part of verse 1, do you see this? Now, faith is being sure of. In the Greek language, that phrase, being sure of, it literally means to stand under or to support. To stand under or support. Faith is to a Christian what a foundation is to a house. Faith is what supports us. Faith is what we, 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 that, that, that keeps us going. We stand under our, or on our faith. Faith gives us a foundation to stand on. 
Secondly, number two, faith gives us a conviction to live by. Here's how he describes it in the word, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of, it gives you something to stand on, sure of what we hope for, and what's that next word, and what? Certain of what we do not see. Faith gives us conviction to live by. The word certain refers to this inner conviction that what God has promised, he will perform. You need that when you go through hard times. You need that kind of certainty, don't you? I need that kind of certainty in those difficult days. So faith gives us a foundation to stand on that I can believe God because of who He is. That He who promised is faithful. Faith gives us a foundation to stand on and it also gives us a conviction to live by. That is, we can have certainty that God is faithful and God will keep His promises. That's what faith does. Let's talk secondly about how faith works. You know how faith works? Well, faith, first of all, deals with the future. Faith deals with the future. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, he says. Faith deals with what we need but don't yet have, doesn't it? Faith deals with what we need but don't yet have. If you, if you had it right now, you would need faith. Faith deals with what we need, but don't yet have. Don't yet have. Uh, you might need some money to meet your financial obligations. You don't yet have it. Faith is when you say, but I believe God's going to provide it. Uh, that, that's, what faith, that's how faith works. It deals with the future. Faith deals with what we need, but not yet, don't yet have. But faith also does something else. Faith also deals with the consequences of our obedience. The consequences of our obedience. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever, <clears throat> have you ever obeyed God and wondered how in the world you're going to make ends meet? Hmm? You ever taken a step of faith where it's like, I'm telling you, if God doesn't come through. Has anybody ever had that experience? You just you just really trusting God to, to do and to provide, and uh, faith deals with the consequences of my obedience. And you wrestle with, if I obey God, how do I know this is going to work out? If I obey God, how do I know He'll meet my needs? That's what it means to walk by faith. I'll give you one example. I, I, I'm sure I've talked about this over the years somewhere along the way, uh, but. I've been thinking about it here lately. I'm not even sure why. Maybe it's just because of the study. But, but I've been thinking about it lately. <clears throat> when Lisa and I first got married, uh, we moved to Fort Worth, Texas. We got married on May 21st, 1983, and we moved to Fort Worth, Texas in August. We, we, we moved with everything that we had was in a little Plymouth Champ car. Well, that's wrong. We probably shipped three or four boxes. UPS ahead of time. So UPS helped us. UPS was our moving van. All right? They moved three or four boxes for us. And then everything else we owned was in that little car. We moved to Fort Worth, Texas to go to seminary. And the reason we went was because we believed that God was leading us to go to seminary, specifically to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. We really believed that. We, we were convinced of that. So we put everything we belong, that, that we had in that little car, sent a few boxes by UPS, 
And we drove to Fort Worth, Texas with no jobs, no connections, not knowing anybody, and we had $800 in our pocket. And when we got out there, we had $800 to pay our rent, get our utilities turned on, buy groceries, buy gas, live on, until one or both of us could get a job. Been thinking about that. I don't even know why. I've just been thinking about that lately. It's like, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if, if, if God doesn't come through, we're sunk. <laughs> and I, I was just thinking about how we were, how old were we? 20-something, early 20s. We were, we were in our early 20s with no jobs, no connections, and just saying, we really believe God wants us to do this, and God will provide. And we saw some amazing things happen while we were out there. And God provided for our needs. He gave Lisa a job first, if I remember right. He gave Lisa a job, and then later I got a job, and then, then I got a second job, and... God provided in amazing ways. And it, it was those three, three and a half years were some of the best years of our lives. But you know what I found, and some of you are going to agree with this. You know, when I look back at, the, at those kind of miracles that God did, you know what I found? Those kind of miracles always happen on the other side of obedience. You hear that? They always happen on the other side of obedience. It'd be nice if God would say, okay, if you move out there, uh, here's what, I, I got it all lined up for you. Your wife's going to get a job at whatever the name of that place was in western Fort Worth, west Fort Worth. You're going to get a job at W.W. Granger's and you're going to park cars at a, be a valet parker at this nice restaurant and, and here's how it's all going to work. But God doesn't do that, does he? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, listen, listen, listen. Faith, faith deals with the consequences of my obedience. Faith is about what will God do if I obey Him? Can I trust God enough to obey Him? Can I trust God enough to follow Him? Can I believe that if I move to Fort Worth, Texas with $800 in my pocket, that God's going to make up the difference? And the writer of Hebrews says, yes. If you follow God, you can trust Him for what's ahead. In fact, let's just, let's just run real quickly through some verses. We'll come back and study them. But I'm going to show you how faith deals with the future and what's ahead. Look at verse 9, chapter 11, verse 9. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. But he was looking what? He was looking forward to the city with foundations who architect and builder is God. Look at verse 25. He chose, talking about Moses, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead. He was looking forward, looking ahead to his reward. You see, faith deals with the consequences of my obedience. Faith deals with What's ahead? Next one. Faith also deals with the invisible. 
going back to chapter 1 or chapter 11 verse 1 it deals with the invisible the writer says now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see certain of what we do not see Look how these verses in chapter 11 describe that and illustrate that principle. Look in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Look at verse 7. By faith Noah, uh, when when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And we'll talk about that. That's going to be a great story to look at to look at in, in a little bit. Verse 8, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Talk about the invisible. Verse 13, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Verse 27, By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, yet persevered because he saw him who is invisible. See, faith deals with the invisible, things we cannot see, but are very, very real. Warren Wiersbe, and this is on your notes, Warren Wiersbe said, True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of the circumstances and the consequences. I thought that was one of the best definitions I've ever seen. It is confident obedience to God's Word, that is to what God tells you, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the consequences. Your circumstances may be impossible, the consequences might be frightening and unknown, but we obey God because God is faithful. You see, we need to understand what faith really is. A lot of stuff that's passed off uh, as faith really isn't faith. Faith is not pretending that something is real when deep down you you don't believe it is. That's not faith. That's foolishness. Faith is not a warm feeling that requires you to check your brain at the door. That's not faith. Faith is not a dreamy escapism trying to hide from the real world. That's not faith. Faith is not a motivational seminar where somebody is trying to help you to picture a better future and and calling you to self self-realization that you can make it all happen. That's not faith. Faith is when I have a confident trust in God, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my situation. James McDonald has a good definition as well. He described faith this way. He said, faith is believing the Word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel because God promises a good result. A good definition too. Faith is believing the Word of God. It's not just shallow hope. It's my belief in the Word of God. It's my belief in what God says. Faith is, I'm not trusting in the newspaper. I'm not trusting in what my neighbor says. I'm not trusting in my boss. Faith is saying, Listen, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm going to be 100% because I'm trusting what God said. You know, there's a football coach around here somewhere that says something like this, all in. I knew somebody would. He's a great man. Nothing, nothing bad to say about him or the program. He just says, we're all in. Would to God that we'd be the same about, about our, our Savior. That we'd trust him and we'd be all in. 
That's what this book is about. That's what this book of Hebrews is about. That we need to be all in. In fact, look at chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself barren, was enabled to become a father because he was all in. He considered him faithful who had made the promise. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Go, let's just jump over to that reference real quick, that cross-reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is... Now, before we close, and I'm going to be real quick, before we close, going back to Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to see that faith is also an action word. I want you to understand that faith involves action. Hebrews chapter 11, we're just going to scan some verses. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. He, he went into action. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He, he went into action. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. He went into action. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to, to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Here's something to think about. If your faith is not leading you into action, is it really faith? See, faith is in those times, I just do what God says because God said it. All right, so I want to end with verse 6. We're not going to study verse 6, but I want to end there. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, God shows us the importance of faith. Here's what he says. And without faith, it is impossible. You might want to mark that in your Bible. Impossible. Please, God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I don't want to mislead you. When you read in chapter 11, and we'll be doing that in the next six weeks, when, when you study through chapter 11, when you look at the, these men and women of the Old Testament, these heroes of the faith, not all of them experienced miraculous deliverance. Not all of them got all of their prayers answered. Not all of them had the, the wonderful results that you and I would desire. And that's the whole point of it. Faith is not a guarantee that things will happen the way you want them to. Faith is, is the certainty that God knows, God cares, and God is working even when I don't feel it or see it. Because He is faithful. He is God.
So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 is an important verse. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Would you pray with me? You'll see, with every head bowed, you'll see when we study through the Scripture that many of these men and women who had faith in God, faithful followers, they didn't see God's promises answered in their lifetimes. But they still believed that God would do what He promised. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we go through this chapter to hold unswervingly to our faith like these men and women. As we look at the examples of these godly men and women from the Old Testament, as we begin to dig down into their lives, into their situations, that they, they obeyed you, they trusted you, they followed you, they went into action because of you. I pray that you'll help us Exhibit faith, unswervingly, holding to the faith we believe. And may Jesus be honored and glorified in our lives and in this church. May we walk by faith, not by sight. In Christ's name I pray, amen.